people don't know what they don't know. And so if you don't understand the knowledge behind type one, then it's hard for you to teach a child, administer for a child and things like that. So I, I would say I never felt bullied, but it was just that set in mindset that I'm different. Oh, hi, Type 1s and Type Nuns. Welcome back. I'm Walt Drennan, and you're listening to Ask Me About My Type 1, the Q&A show all about Type 1 diabetes. This week, I bring on my new Type 1 friend, Cameron, and her Type Nun friend, JC. Cameron tells me about the challenges of growing up in a small town in the middle of Nebraska that she had to navigate while learning about her own Type 1. By the way, did any of you know that there's only one pediatric endocrinologist in the entire state of Nebraska? It was a really eye-opening conversation for me. As always, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you're listening to this podcast. And if you want to be part of the conversation even more, click on the link at the end of the show notes so you can leave me a voicemail. You can send me your questions, comments, or even corrections that will most definitely be featured on a future episode. Thank you again for listening, and here's the show. All right, Cameron and JC, thank you so much for joining me on this episode. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Yeah, so Cameron, uh, like I said... uh, a bit before I met you online, basically on Instagram, because I happened to mention a specific experience in the type one community and that of the rural type one diabetic. Um, and I just happened to mention Nebraska because it's one of the, the Midwestern states that I one love and kind of really know because I happened to bike through it a couple of times. And then you messaged me like a couple of days after that saying like, I'm actually from Nebraska and I'm one of those type ones that lives out in the boonies. So that was a really cool way of connecting with someone that was actually listening to the show. So why don't you introduce yourself and uh, tell us about your story and when you were diagnosed. All right. Hi, everybody. So like Walt said, my name is Cameron, and I sometimes go by Cam. It's a little easier to remember, but I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes November 24th, 2009. So this November will be my 10-year double digits. Pretty excited. Probably going to have a party. It'll be fun. But um, so my diagnosis story is pretty interesting. Again, that comes from the rural perspective that Walt had mentioned. So I grew up in a town of 1400 people. My graduating class was 29 students. And when I was diagnosed, I was 12. My symptoms were that, you know, kind of classic diabetes symptoms. Now that I know what the symptoms are, uh, I had an increased thirst and went pee all the time. I had Really oddly, specifically, I had calf cramps, like Charlie horses, so often. And I would be getting up in the middle of the night probably eight or ten times. And I was sleeping through classes, and my parents were, you know, just kind of thinking this isn't like her. So mom assumed I had a UTI and growing pains because it was that lovely time, that lovely adolescence. And so she took me to the doctor, and they pricked my finger, a nurse did, And again, small community. So I knew this nurse, I knew who she was. And she said, or actually she didn't say anything. The number just popped up and it was 396. And she had this big eyed look on her face. And I said, is that bad? Because we very minimal knowledge of type one. And she said, let me go talk to the doctor. Doctor comes back, says, 
we're going to run a couple more tests. And that's that's kind of like the one moment that really sticks out. But basically, immediately, they diagnosed me with type 1 diabetes. And um, after conferring with doctors over the phone, I think that they just wanted to double check. But after conferring, they decided to send me to the Children's Hospital in Nebraska, which is in Omaha, Nebraska, which was about a two-hour, two and two hour and 15 minute drive. And I think to alleviate the cost for us, they weren't going to send me in an ambulance, but they literally told my mom, get in the vehicle, get stop at Casey's and get water and then leave. Don't have, you don't have time to pack a bag because we live in the country where I grew up. We live in the country. So to get to our house would have been an extra 30 minutes to get going to Omaha. So they said, just drive to Omaha. And I just remember crying and talking to my mom about this because, I mean, she didn't even have much of an understanding. So for her to try and explain that to her 12-year-old child who is just a mess, I, I just remember how messy it was. And it was the weekend of Thanksgiving. So that was that was interesting, just that little stint I had in the children's hospital. I was excited to be in Omaha because we got to go shopping. And being from a rural community, I was not not used to having the Target, like right around the corner from the hospital. So... So yeah, that's my story. That's my diagnosis story. And I think a big part of my diagnosis story is also my brother's diagnosis story. So he was actually diagnosed with type one seven months after I was diagnosed. And again, tying back into this rural setting scenario where, where challenges are presented, we obviously knew the signs at that point, what, what a high blood sugar is. And he had drank a gallon of milk in like an hour. And mom had noticed he'd been peeing a lot more. So we tested his blood sugar on my glucometer and the blood sugar read high, you know, back in the day when meters used to read like high, they wouldn't even register that high of a number. So we took him to a local hospital, which would have been 30 minutes away. And I, cause we didn't want to go all the way to children's. And so I remember being in the hospital and they were telling Jared to, I just remember the dosing being really off. I don't remember specifically what it was, but I know that they told him to take insulin 30 minutes after eating. And they were talking about putting him on a pill and that there was nothing. And it took a while for me, me and my parents to understand that they had kind of diagnosed him with type two and were using those guidelines. And I was like throwing a fit. I was 13 at this point and I was oh, 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 snapping in their face. Like you guys are so wrong. And we were all upset. And, and I think that, diagnosis story could have been so much worse if I had not first been diagnosed. And so I think that's what's so interesting about growing up in, in these rural settings is, yeah, hospitals, those people that are supposed to be, you know, the people who understand and are most knowledgeable in these fields near you sometimes aren't. And sometimes, I mean, bad things could have came from that. But I think that my brother's diagnosis really kind of intertwines with mine in that way because we just had different experiences. Kind of like you mentioned earlier, Walt, the point of this podcast is to explain the differences. And I think that that's an interesting story. Yeah, it really is. How old was your brother at the time? He would have been 11. So for them to diagnose him basically with type 2 diabetes at age 11 was kind of ridiculous. Yeah, because the misdiagnosis of type 1 isn't very uncommon, even within like big cities. But the advantage of big cities is that doctors see a lot more patients. So like they get signs to look out for. So when a kid comes in with high blood sugar, it's probably type one. Whereas if you're an older person and you're diagnosed with type one or you have type one and they don't know that yet, they're a little bit more reluctant. So there's still those 
those barriers within even the medical field, like the people that are supposed to know these things don't necessarily know them as well as they should or to the benefit of their patients. So those things can happen here. But like here in Pittsburgh, where I live, I live within like within a five mile radius. There's three different hospitals I could go to and I could probably get a different um, level of care at each one. And yeah. but yeah, so like for you, you just have that one hospital. And if had you not had your diagnosis earlier in the year, your brother might not have um, come out the way he did. So yeah, that is, that is really lucky and really interesting to hear from your sure. side of it. Yeah. All right. And so you invited your friend JC. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Hello, JC. You're a type nun for the day. Yes, I am. I'm new to this whole world. <laughs> All right. So tell us about yourself, JC. How do you know Cameron? How low, how far do you two go back? And then how do you know Cameron's type one? So Cammy and I met my freshman year of college, like within the first couple weeks. And we ended up being in the same sorority. And then we graduated college and we've just kind of stayed close ever since. I guess like when I first met her, I, I really did not know much about diabetes at all. I like had just seen people who have had it or like, I guess, which is, this is so stereotypical, but I guess this is what this show is about. Like, I guess like what I associated it with was like people taking insulin before eating food or eating like snacks when they were low. And I just, I guess I didn't really always understand the severity of it. And then I am a nurse. So I started nursing school when I was a junior in college and I really feel like my knowledge of diabetes grew a ton through everything that I learned from a nurse's standpoint. And I never understood how serious it could get or what those like true, like really low levels meant or those signs and symptoms of really high levels. And so I feel like I've, like I have a pretty good basis understanding of diabetes. And I feel like I've been able to like hold like deeper conversations with Cami about diabetes because of that. And she has taught me so much too. <laughs> just, you know, cause it's like, you can always learn from a textbook, but it's real life isn't always a textbook. So absolutely. Yeah. I, that's kind of my basis with diabetes. Okay. And then what's something that really sticks out that uh, Cameron has taught you about type one that you didn't, didn't necessarily learn in school. Okay. So one of the things that like baffles me still to this day is in school or like in a hospital setting every food has like on like a nutrition tray like it has like a carb count like next to the food next to it but like when Cami and I go out to eat obviously every restaurant doesn't list carbs on their menu and so it still baffles me to this day of how she can just pull out her little <laughs> insulin pen whip out a number and then give herself an injection and I'm just like how do you even know like and I'm sure it's just all the time you've spent learning and memorizing different numbers and just the experiences you've had from eating those foods before. But like, it's just like, that's one instance where she's taught me, like, it's not all textbook and you gotta live life. On, <laughs> yeah. You know? Go with the flow sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. You just get used to it. I guess you can kind of look at a plate of food. I may not know the carb count specifically, but I know how much I should dose for it. And I've been doing this for 19 years. So that's, that's just kind of how, I gotten used to it. But there are people that get really anxious about going out to eat. Like they don't do that because they don't have those numbers. Like you're saying, I've noticed it a lot with people that are diagnosed later in life. So like in their late thirties or, or late twenties, early thirties, 
because it is really scary. And insulin, I think people that have been diagnosed with it longer tend to forget how dangerous insulin can be. It's just something that we take every day. But it's really easy to forget that insulin has a very limited therapeutic range. So you could definitely kill yourself if you're not careful. Exactly. So yeah, so like that's probably kind of where you're coming from because you know how hard it is to dose somebody that's newly diagnosed with type 1 and how important it is to get that insulin dosage correct. I have another thing like that I feel like you like kind of taught me like just from like being with her in like random times is that this isn't always just something that like you can just be like oh I'm just going to give me some, like myself some insulin and then I'm going to forget about it for the rest of the day like no matter where we go, every it's like, it's always there. And it's like, you are so good about always just like being like so positive about it and everything. So thank you, JC. You appreciate that. <laughs> I'm glad I've taught you something. <laughs> You're, thank you. <laughs> okay, JC, let's start with your questions. But before we get to the questions, I just want to remind you that there's a lot of terminology. You might actually understand a lot of it. But there's also a lot of like type 1 lingo that kind of gets thrown around between type 1s, especially when we kind of get into it. And they can be very confusing and just not really make any sense to type nuns like yourself. So if you ever hear anything or if you just don't understand what we're talking about, you can call what I'm calling a type 1 timeout. So you just say that and then conversation stops and then we have to explain whatever it is that you want us to explain until you get it. And then to people listening, if you're listening with a, a type nun and they have a type 1 timeout, you can pause the show and explain it to them the way you think it should be explained and go on from there because this is an interactive show we're not live you can pause whenever you want okay okay jason so your first question okay so my first question for you cammy was did you ever feel bullied or ashamed in school when you were growing up so it's an interesting question i wouldn't say i ever felt bullied but i definitely felt misunderstood which can definitely lead to shame Growing up in a rural school, at that point, I was the only person with type 1 diabetes, and I remember coming to school with a packed lunch because my mom knew what those carb counts were, and our school didn't did not provide carb counts. So that's something that my parents advocated for. We got carb counts, and then at that point, I would go into the nurse's office, take my injections, etc. Um, but even my rural school, our school nurse was not a registered nurse. She was the school nurse and that's, that was it. And then I'm not putting any shame on her because she was an amazing lady. She helped me so much, but you know what I'm saying? It just, that rural standpoint of like, when I was growing up, I thought she was this awesome, you know, nurse helping me out, knowing all this stuff. But in reality, she wasn't trained or knowledgeable in that aspect, but she learned a lot for me. And so moving on in my diabetic life, I think it was probably, a couple months into my diagnosis, my principal of the school I was in decided that I should keep my meter in the nurse's office, which the nurse's office was on the first floor. And being a small school that is junior high and senior high combined, I had classes on first level, second level, third level. And so for the principal to decide that was very frustrating for me and my family, because if I'm in art on the third level, of my high school and I can't prick my finger or take a shot. Like, honestly, if I can't even prick my finger, I don't know where I'm at because I never had a CGM in high school or junior high. And so 
my parents did a really good job of educating the school and advocating for the rights that are legally mine as a person with a disability. And so we really maneuvered through those things quickly, I think. But I just remember those like flashbulb moments of just me being different, me being called out in the middle of class and, and, you know, like the nurse coming in and saying, okay, it's time to check your blood sugar. Just that adjustment was huge. And we growing up never saw counselors and we never saw a therapist or anything like that because it was very taboo. And so I think if I had that, maybe I wouldn't have felt that shame. If I had coping mechanisms, if I had um, just somebody to talk to besides my brother that understood, I think that things would have gone a different way. But in, in the same context, I would not change where I grew up for anything because I still love the small community that I'm from. They're amazing people and I wouldn't, I don't want to talk bad about them, but that it's just a really good example of how people really aren't, people don't know what they don't know. And so if you don't understand the knowledge behind type one, then it's hard for you to teach a child, administer for a child and things like that. So I, I would say I never felt bullied, but it was just that, that set in mindset that I'm different. Yeah. It's something I say every now and again, type one is very isolating and it's isolating for everybody really. Like I've, I always felt isolated about it because I was the only type one that I knew. And I was very reluctant to try and seek out others. There probably were a lot of type ones around around me because I lived in you know pretty big cities. But I just didn't want to find them because I didn't want to be associated with my type one. I, I dealt with it. I took care of myself, you know, the best way I knew how. But I didn't want to have to deal with it more than I had to. Whereas where you're coming from, you literally were one of two type ones in your entire town and for you know hundreds of miles. So that's really interesting and something that I'm sure a lot of people understand i have a question for both of you guys yes sure so like how long do you think it took for you to finally like accept that this is like what you had and that you were going to deal with it for the rest of your life potentially like, potentially sorry that was a heavy loaded loaded question but a fantastic question very good question um, yeah yeah so going back to the whole isolated thing when walt was talking i was thinking about my pediatric doctor that I saw at Children's literally up until I was age 22 because I loved this doctor so much. She would always tell us, come to diabetes camp, come to these diabetes events. Again, two hours away at least for us to attend these events. But number two, I I think I associated it with fat camp. I was like, no, I am not going to camp with all these weird diabetics. I'm not, like you said, I'm not associating myself with this thing. I'm just going to take care of it until so that I live and that's it. And I think the transition for me from growing up with um, my family and most people knowing about diabetes, just from me talking about it, but then that environment and going to college where literally nobody except for maybe a handful of friends knew, I think that's when I accepted it. That's when I was like, you're on your own. You're independent. This is, this is life. You're becoming an adult, you know? And I think People took interest in my diabetes in college in a different way than than growing up in a small town where everyone knew it was all kind of unspoken. 
and then I went to college and people were like, wow, that's more, that's really interesting. Tell me more about that. And like JC had mentioned, we were in a sorority together and the president of our sorority was just this amazing woman named Haley. And I had been talking about diabetes for probably an hour in her room one day. And she was like, this is really interesting. You should have an informational booth on campus and talk about it. And so I did that for National Diabetes Awareness Month. And that eventually was enough to get me a couple of diabetic connections on campus, which later turned into me starting a chapter of the College Diabetes Network on my campus. So it's just, I think that that transition to independence and me being able to decide if I wanted to explain my diabetes to people, because when I was growing up, there was no decision. My parents just explained it. We just explained it. We moved on. And then I went to college and it was a choice. So it's, it is a loaded question. That was a loaded answer. But I think people, <laughs> people taking interest in me, I was like, yeah, I'm the diabetic girl on campus. That's what's up. <laughs> yeah. I had a very different experience. I, I would say <laughs> that my, yeah, I was probably the complete opposite of Cameron. I, I, I got to college. I started taking care of myself, like, you know, 100% of the time. I messed up a lot. I would, you know, forget to get my insulin prescriptions filled. So it was like, I got myself into a lot of, like, sticky situations. And I just didn't like talking about it, especially in college, um, because I wanted to be, I wanted to divine myself. And I thought that if I, like, led with type 1 or just, like, people knew that about me, they would only think of me as the type 1 kid. So when I went from acknowledging it to accepting it, it was probably probably like 17 years in or so 15 17 years in so it was when i started like cycling across the country the first time i did it was back in 2012 and um that was kind of like when i had to face my type one like very literally every day because i needed to bike you know upwards of like 75 miles a day average so doing that for just anybody is hard but doing with type one is even harder because you have you have all these variables to think about so I got the slap in the face. It's like, oh, I actually have to do this and take care of myself so that I can actually enjoy the things that I want to do and not just like hate myself and hate the people around me because they can do it so much easier than I can. So cycling was really when I started accepting it. And then it, again, a few years later, it took a few years after that to kind of like really accept it and realize that I'll probably have this for the rest of my life, but I can, you know, deal with it and not let it define me the way I was, you know, for the first 17 years or so. So yeah, very, not a, I don't think it's as healthy as Cameron's experience with it, but yeah. And I think Cameron's attitude towards it is just kind of where I am now. It's just, it took me a little longer to get there. So like, like we were talking about earlier, type one is different for everybody. It's a journey that you get to when you get to it. And don't let my answer fool you. There were definitely hiccups. I definitely forgot insulin. I definitely had to have JC prick my finger in the middle of the night one time. I'm not kidding. That's when all my friends were like, oh, she's going to be an amazing nurse. She's pricking your finger after a couple too many drinks. You know what I'm saying? Like, I had those hiccups. But I think a lot of the time I wanted to put on this mask. Like, I am a diabetes princess and I don't let anything phase me. Well, behind closed doors, maybe that's not so true. Yeah, and, and I think. I think my reluctance to let people know about it got me into a lot more trouble too because there were in college the later years that's when I started getting having to get the hosp the ambulance called because my lows got so severe and the pe the reason why they called the ambulance is because they had no idea why I was passed out in the middle of the library like to them because they had no idea that I had type 1 or that it was like a possibility for me to you know have a seizure in the middle of a car ride to a, a mock trial event in Maryland so yeah 
the, the way people found out that I had type one was, you know, those instances when I would pass out in front of them um, at a basketball game, for example. There was a lot of them that happened in college for me. And still, even after that, I was very hush-hush about it. When people asked me, I was like, why did they take you away in, a hosp- in an ambulance? I was like, oh, nothing. Fine. I'm fine. And I just brush it off. So it was very, I was very reluctant to talk about it, even when it was very clear that something was going on. It's something that you have to accept and get to. You know, there are definitely way, different ways of going about it. Mine wasn't the best, I always say. Very good question. Oh, thank you. I have more coming, so get ready. <laughs> Please. <laughs> so just like, obviously, like working in a hospital and just like the like, you know, I've seen people with chronic illnesses before and I, you learn in school, like how it can affect their lives and like their, um, mentalities. Do you guys ever feel like I, both of you, I feel like obviously have pretty positive aspects and outlooks on it, but do you still have those days where you feel like anger or hatred knowing that like you're, you have to deal with this still like and you have to live with it. I feel like deal with that was not a good word choice, but I meant like, if that makes sense, like you have to live with it every day. Should I answer this first or would you like to answer, Walt? You can go. I'll answer, but you can go first. Okay. I think that that is kind of directly related back to this last question because I think having a hatred or this sort of self-loathing mindset towards it I don't know that necessarily that always happens for people with chronic illness. I definitely think everybody is so different, but you do go through like a grief process. Cause for me, I was 12 and it was like, number one, I hated my parents to begin with. And so then with chronic illness, I was like over dramatic times 10, my life was over. Um, this guy on MSN was not going to talk to me anymore because I wasn't online for at least a week. <laughs> <laughs> I literally had a boyfriend on MSN when I got diagnosed, you guys, okay? (laughs) And so, you know, for me, I was grieving this, like, life that I thought was so perfect beforehand, but, like, I was 12. So I think growing through that grief experience is different for everybody. Like, if I was diagnosed at age 23, I would have handled it differently. And I've actually talked to people who were diagnosed as young adults who have not experienced burnout. And so that's a term that I don't know if you are, are aware of, burnout with diabetes. It's just like you get like to where you're tired of taking care of yourself. And-, mm-hmm. and sometimes it's so severe that people will stop taking insulin, stop checking things, and just like live and do the bare minimum. And I definitely went through a period of time in my life in high school. Long story short, I had gotten my wisdom teeth surgically removed. And so I was on bed rest and whatever. I was taking injections at the time. And you know, when you get your wisdom teeth out, you don't eat a whole lot. And so for me, it was like I was eating low carb foods. So I was like, well, I'm not going to take just one unit if this is all I'm eating. And I got into this vicious routine, which I now recognize as burnout, that I just stopped taking as much insulin as I should or my bolus. I would miss boluses and it'd be no big deal. Well, before I knew it, I had um, complications from my wisdom teeth and I had lost 30 pounds. And I went in my A1C, I went to the doctor, my A1C, it was up and my doctor had noticed that I lost weight. And she had mentioned that when the nurse said what my weight was on the scale, the nurse said that I smiled. And so isn't that interesting that like at such a young age, I think I was 15. I was so like, I think wrapped up 
in different things in life that diabetes had no part in it. And so I, I looked and I was like, yeah, everything's fine. I'm losing weight. I look great. I'm skinny. Well, in reality, my body was starving and I wasn't taking care of myself because I was in this deep burnout. And so I think um, there's definitely those periods of time in life because we will, as of right now, we will not be cured. I like to be hopeful, but as of right now, you know, we're going to have it forever. So in my mind, it's like, I could get mad that my blood sugar went up to, what was it? 384 this weekend. Cause I messed up with some pizza. I could get mad at myself. I could be mad all week long, but that is such a short time in my life. So I've always, I should say always recently, I try to look at my Dexcom data and say, okay, how am I going to make a choice based on this. It's everything is a choice and no result makes me any less or any more of a person. A good A1C doesn't make me a great person. A bad A1C doesn't make me a bad person. And so I think reminding myself that my life isn't defined by the numbers. And again, that goes back to the scale as well has really helped me. Yeah. That's another really good question because there are a lot of, I noticed in college, like towards the end, um, that's when I started noticing how type one actually can affect me, like very physically to the point where it affects the people around me, especially like my mental state. So like when I get low, I would get really depressed and start like uh, getting one one of the, the symptoms that I remember seeing on the chart when I was first diagnosed was hopelessness. And it's it was really odd. But then like once I got to college, like I actually started feeling hopeless. Like I was in I majored in psychology and philosophy. So like, oh, my oh whenever I would get low, I'd start like getting really worried about not getting, finding a job after college. This was like, you know, sophomore year um, when it wasn't really something I had to think about too hard. But like when I was in those states, it was so much easier to go to those like dark and sad places when I was low, but I never really made the connection between my blood sugar and my mental state. So for me, it just sent, I just felt like I was a crazy person. Like I would be like angry at one moment and then like super sad the next, not realizing that it was my high blood sugars and low blood sugars that were you know, in a in essence, causing it. And so the, there are those really frustrating times when, like, at least for me, type one is like made me really question my myself a lot. Like, am I feeling am I actually feeling this way? Or is it my type one? But then like Cameron said, I've been doing this for 19 years now. So I've kind of kind of gotten used to the fact that my sugars aren't going to be perfect all the time. Um, I'll see the numbers now. And when they're really high, it's like, oh, no, I messed up. Like I had too much cereal. I didn't bolus for that, you know, slice of pizza, like Cameron said. But again, we have diabetes. And so that means that our sugars are not going to be perfect. Like we have an inability to control our blood sugar range. And that's going to come with highs and lows. And so it's just a matter of taking them in stride, figuring out what you should do next, trying to avoid the situations that got you there in the first place. And it's just a big learning curve. Like Cameron said, we're going to have this for I'm I'm prepared to live with this for the rest of my life, so I'm just kind of thinking of it that way and just playing it safe. So so now I know to bolus a little bit more when I have that extra bowl of cereal or extra slice of pizza or what have you. But yeah, it is a, a mental roller coaster too, not just the physical one. Do you feel like you've like learned how to forgive yourself better too, like throughout the years? Yeah, I think so. Because it would, like I said, like high blood sugars would always make me not just angry because, you know, when you have high blood sugar, it's not a very comfortable feeling. So for me personally, I get just, I get really irritable and I would get angry at myself 
a lot because it's like, oh, why'd you eat that, you know, extra donut? Like, you know, you know, this is going to happen. Like, why'd you do it kind of thing? And I think it does. Type one does give you a lot of chances to forgive yourself or a lot of opportunities to kind of take what you do in stride and really analyze what you're doing and remind you that there are physical consequences to like the foods that you eat or the actions that you take, but then that also that you can do better the next day. Like that's a good outlook to have. Yeah, I would have to agree. I think connecting with other people with type one diabetes is also where I had a huge moment of reckoning where um, I was just able to ask questions and discuss things that nobody else understood. And that literally did not happen for five or six years into my diagnosis. Guys, I mean, I had Jared, my brother, but you know, things are different for everybody. And at that point, me and Jared had basically been treating our diabetes the exact same way because we lived under the same roof. And so I think that learning so much from other people and having that outlet to connect with other people has reminded me that I do have people to go to that will understand. They go through, for lack of better words, the exact same thing. They get high blood sugars, they get low blood sugars, so they know the feeling. And I always remind myself, you're not the only one. You're not a failure. You know, again, they're just numbers, which sounds dramatic because the numbers are important, but the numbers don't define us. Yeah, type 1 is a really, it's a very middle of the road kind of condition. Like you have to find your middle of the road. Um, a lot of people live by the numbers and take them very seriously, but I think that can be its own type of anxiety. Um, oh, yeah. So yeah, there's a definitely, there's a very, very fine middle ground that you have to find for yourself. It's different for everybody. The, and it changes too. So like we change throughout our lives. So our type one is going to change with us too. So it's a matter of figuring out how you're going to get through today and then kind of being okay with how that might not work tomorrow or even later today. Literally. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Cameron you mentioned how like everybody knew that you had type one but they may not have brought it up to you how did you take that unwillingness to talk about type one i think it was very much like a hush hush thing where people did not mention it unless they were close to me and i didn't really mind that i don't i, I definitely don't think i wanted to talk about it very much when i was first diagnosed i was i was willing to educate my classmates and my teachers you know what i'm saying but going throughout high school though this is probably going to sound like slightly, I don't want this to sound ignorant, but it was almost like people treated me like I had cancer, like a disease that I was literally going to die tomorrow. So they wouldn't bring it up. It was very hush hush. And so um, navigating that, I found it was easier for me to just not bring it up when I was younger. But when I was in sports, that was an opportunity for me to talk about it more too, which was really helpful. But I remember sitting out in in volleyball games and having to have a juice box and just looks from people like a, my coach gave me a look one day and she might not have said anything she might not have even thought anything it could have just been her face but I remember thinking like she's so disappointed in me I'm not gonna make varsity etc and and not talking about it in those contexts, like you said, it's very dangerous. I also passed out at a game one time. That's the only time I've ever had a seizure was at a volleyball game. And I mean, that could have been prevented if people knew the symptoms, if people knew what to expect, but in hindsight, they really didn't because I didn't talk about it that much. Yeah. I think that was 
a wake-up call that I got way later than I should have. I was putting people in very awkward situations where I was definitely in need of help, but they just didn't know how to help me or the fact that I needed it. So a lot of those ambulance calls could have been avoided, I think. And I was just very reluctant to like test my sugar when I should have. So I was always I was on pens at the time in college, so I would dose and just stack on stack. Um, there was a point where my highs started to feel like, where my lows started to feel like my highs. So, like, whenever I felt high, I was like, oh, I would just, you know, five units, stick it in my leg and go on with my life. And then I would just keep on doing that. And then a few times I actually just, you know, kept on doing it until I, I literally passed out. And it was around people that didn't know what was going on. So they, you know, called the ambulance because that's what you do when someone passes out. Mm-hmm. And you know what's interesting is like I, I hear JC over here as you're telling this story and, and I hear her go, oh my goodness. You know, all these people, and I'm not saying you directly, JC, but like the reaction when you explain some of the harder parts of diabetes, people's reaction is kind of interesting and it's not from a place of ignorance or anything like that. It's they, they respond and they're kind of like, well, why don't you take care of yourself? And again, not like JC's saying this right now directly, but it just reminded me of people that will say, well, why don't you take care of yourself? Why don't you do this? How did that happen? And I got really, really mad when I was younger at people that asked those questions. But again, coming back to that realization, when I grew older, people don't know what they don't know. And so for somebody to ask me a, a stupid or an ignorant question about diabetes, I say that with air quotes because there's no such thing as a stupid question. When they would ask me those questions, I decided to educate them. And it's always been my philosophy since then that if I am able to educate one person who's asking a question about type one, then maybe in the future, they're not going to make someone else feel like that. And I'm, I'm talking about those questions that are like, well, why don't you take care of yourself? Why don't you do this? Why do you not cure your diabetes with cinnamon? I could get mad because they're uneducated or I could educate them and they are not going to go to another person and talk about cinnamon and diabetes ever again. And so I look at it that way. Instead of getting upset, I say, I I pat myself on the back. I say, you know, you're doing a service to this community. You are educating these people who are asking seemingly silly questions and they're going to move on with their lives. They're going to understand type one a little better. Yeah. And like, like you're saying how JC was kind of shocked at like me talking about (laughs) passing out. And, you know, very it's the things that we go through seem pretty scary to people that just don't get it. But I think the fact that like people that have been diagnosed since I was diagnosed at 12 years old, too, we've been doing this for a very long time and taking care of yourself 24 seven, 356. Yeah, we're a little desensitized to like to the, the danger of it, too, like how dangerous it can be if we don't take care of ourselves. But on the flip side of that, taking care of yourself 24 seven forever is exhausting. Sometimes you don't take the correct bullets because you just don't want to think about it or you don't necessarily get up as quickly as you might or you should to treat a low because it's just exhausting to have to deal with it day in, day out. There's no breaks from it. So I think for our own sanity, we can't think of it as a like a do or die kind of thing all the time. So, yeah, that actually came that's come up in a few episodes, how they how people ask is like, do you always consider like your your mortality or does it make you think about your mortality differently and the type ones that have been around me are always kind of like huh i guess i never really thought about it that way and it's because we can't because we wouldn't live our life the way we should i think if we constantly thought about how how close we are to not making it i agree jc do you have any other questions 
that yeah i'm gonna bring up a like a cool part because there's a lot of cool things about diabetes <laughs> and cammy's like the epitome of that right now so, so many cool things so many cool things so i want to know what the coolest thing about having diabetes is which i mean i just want to hear like positives about it too cameron what are your thoughts <laughs> are you- i think that when jc when jc uh wrote that question down i was like cool (laughs) i was like cool as in like triumphant exciting Um, however you want she said we can interpret it however we want so i saw your positive aspects i would say my favorite thing about diabetes is all the people that i've met and again this goes back to my experience in a rural community is I never had connection until I went to college and through the college diabetes network I was able to travel twice to the east coast and I had all these opportunities to just live my best life and meet people with type 1 and connect in different ways and sometimes those opportunities came to me for free literally because I have diabetes like I would not have traveled to Maine I would not have traveled to Massachusetts if I didn't have diabetes. And if you think about that, that's pretty cool. And I just think of um, my connections with people at Camp Floyd Rogers, which is a diabetes camp that I randomly decided to go to in 2016. No, 2015. I didn't know a single person. I just signed up. I was like, this is it. I'm going to meet people. And I did. And they're some of my best friends. I'm hanging out with them all this weekend. We're having a reunion. And I just, I think about the experiences and the people that I would not know and the experiences I would not have had if it weren't for diabetes. And that also goes back to even um, a perspective of being in college. I felt like people had a different sort of thought about me with diabetes, which is, you know, everyone's going to have their own thoughts. But I think that they looked at me with more of an admirable thought, you know, you're able to do this with diabetes. And that's one of my favorite things is I can say I'm doing this with diabetes I'm doing this with diabetes and it's literally I'm never gonna say I can't do that because I have diabetes that's my main thing and I think except make just, insulin yeah. yeah except make insulin exactly yeah. love it. <laughs> I, love it. <laughs> I think similar to what Cameron's saying is that type one may not be the coolest thing ever but it's definitely given me opportunities to do things that I never would have without it like the bike rides that I was talking about. I've done three cross-country bike rides, and I think the first one was so meaningful to me because I was able to get through it because of my Type 1. I was the only Type 1 on the team, but it was something that was like special about me that made me appreciate the ride a bit more. So I think it made me like cycling across country that much more than I would have had I not had that, like that extra difficulty added to it. And then the, the bike ride that I helped organize of, with just a team of Type 1s biking across the country. I wouldn't have been able to do that had I not had type one. And then just kind of all the opportunities that came out out of that to meet all the people that I have. I've started going to adult type one camp the past couple of years. And I never did that as a kid because I didn't think that I never really thought about type one camp as a thing until it was too late. And now they have type one camps for adults. They're like basically camp weekends, but they're exactly like summer camp for kids. You do, you know, ropes courses, but you also talk about type one topics and you learn about different types of management from other people. So yeah, it's or that's the coolest aspect of it that I can think of. That's awesome. That's amazing that you've done three cross-country bike rides, too. I have a lot of time to kill. So, yeah. <laughs> that's so fun. Yeah, Nebraska yeah. is the best state to, to bike through, I would say. 
it's beautiful, isn't it? It's so and pretty. It's so, so well. There, there are some rolling parts, but yeah, Omaha was yeah. really cool. I really enjoyed Omaha when I went through it. I went through Lincoln. We stayed at the University of Nebraska at Lincoln. I uh, went through Arapaho, a whole bunch of little tiny towns. Arapaho, where our friend Stephanie's from. Shout out. <laughs> You guys have answered all of my questions. Well, good. That's Those good. Okay. Those were great questions. Those were really good questions, yeah. All right, yeah. Cameron. So I think the reason why we kind of kept on talking online or uh, in Instagram was your the study that you're actually part of. Because of your experience as a rural type one, it really – so you gave me some information about it before we started talking, and it reminded me of a program that's starting here at Pittsburgh it's a, called a wraparound program. Basically, they assign newly diagnosed type 1s no matter what age range they are. So they have basically kind of counselors that have type 1 that walk them through the first few months of their diagnosis. So in this case, they have three. There's one, there's like a teenage adolescent type 1 that talks to all the teenage and adolescent uh, newly diagnosed. Then there's a person that was diagnosed later in their like late 20s, early 30s that's to them, talk to those people. And then a parent of a type 1 that can talk to families that have been recently diagnosed. Because th those first few months, I would say, are probably the most crucial because it's the most overwhelming. Because it's something that they're learning about this lifelong condition that they have to take care, for, take care of for the rest of their life. And there's really no handhold. There's not a whole lot of handholding after that first yeah. week in the hospital. And so your study, is, it reminded me a lot of that. So talk to me about the study that you're doing and what it's trying to achieve. Well, that is a very cool program. I really liked um, hearing about that. So the research projects that I'm a part of, the title is Building Rural Stakeholder Engagement in Patient-Centered Type 1 Diabetes Research. So I think that the main focus here is to hold focus groups for a population of people who are affected by type 1 in rural communities. And the study defines a rural community as one hour outside of Omaha, Nebraska. For those of you who aren't looking at a map, Omaha is on the far eastern side. And so if you live in western Nebraska, you probably travel either to Wyoming, to Colorado, sometimes Kansas, sometimes South Dakota for doctors. I, I have a good friend who goes to Denver and instead of Omaha, just because of that time differential, Nebraska is a state that's split with a time zone. So she she lives in mountain time, went to school in central time. So so there are, a lot, are, are so many barriers for these people who need to travel to get the best care. There is actually only one pediatric endocrinologist in Nebraska currently. So to travel, actually to schedule is, is kind of that number one barrier. But we're doing this study so that we can investigate these barriers. Because I think we have a lot of assumptions, our research team, you know, we think, you know, travel time, money spent, scheduling, all those things come into play. But we want to hear it from the aspect of, again, those people living in rural communities that commute. So we're going to be holding focus groups to actually discuss it in person. And kind of like I mentioned, one one piece of feedback I gave the research team is that I think everyone can benefit from talking to another person affected by type 1 in person. There's just something different about it, connecting in person and explaining, you know, the different trials and triumphs that we all go through. So that's what's really exciting to me about the study is to just hear different perspectives. And ideally at the end of 
our focus groups, we'll be able to identify those key barriers and possibly discuss ways to obviously not prevent those barriers from happening, but maneuvering through them. How can we alleviate some of those things and bring together some sort of solutions for those families who obviously deserve the same amount of care, but just travel a lot farther for it? Yeah, like we were talking about this before the show started. I've never lived, I've never been in a location where I had to travel more than, you know, 20, 30 minutes to get to my endo or to an airport, basically. But I actually met people like yourself in uh, while I was on the bike ride for Bike Beyond. We were traveling through Kansas, but there was a family with a young type one. He was about like eight, maybe. And they drove four hours from Nebraska to uh, Oklahoma, I think it was, or Kansas just to meet us and it was they were there for maybe a couple hours um but for them that drive i think they ended up staying in the night but um that drive and that night stay in a hotel was worth it for their son to see a team of type ones doing something that's kind of cool so wow yeah and you know if you tell me their name i probably know them <laughs> uh, i wish i could remember the name Nebraska's like. <laughs> and it wasn't even just their the one son type one son they had two other younger kids too so it was the whole family came out so it was a big it was a big deal for them and i really it kind of really gave me an, an example of the impact that things like that have especially for those towns in the middle of the country that make up you know 90% of the us where there's just the one or two type ones in town and they really don't have those outlets or they don't have those uh, conventions or jdrf gala things that a lot of the bigger cities have more frequently and then how did camp work out for you? Like, how did you find out about camp and how did you, what made you kind of like take that plunge? Great question. So I, when I was growing up, I was a part of the youth development organization 4-H, which I now work for. So when I was growing up and I was a part of this organization, we had 4-H camp and it was sort of this regional camp where, I mean, it was probably 50 kids. We all got together. We went to this summer camp and I was a counselor my senior year of high school and there ended up being a camper with type one I think she was eight or nine at the time and they had a nurse on staff but again not I don't even know if it was a registered nurse or anything like that but they said okay we're putting her in your cabin we're putting her in your color group she's going to be with you at all times just in case something happens and you know how to handle it and I was like okay so I met her and she was like well if you think this is fun you should go to diabetes camp and I was like yeah okay everybody's mentioned that right well, so I looked it up and I had found out from someone that, you know, if you go to these camps and you work as a counselor, technically you can use those hours as community service hours because of the nature of how they pay you. And so I needed community service hours for my sorority. And I was like, well, this is cool. This will give me a reason to have some good community service hours and whatever. So I literally signed up, didn't know a single person. And I remember walking up to camp for counselor training and my friend Dylan, who, I mean, as of right now, I think he's been to diabetes camp for over 13 years. So he was very much like, this is my second home. And as soon as he saw me there, he could tell I was a little apprehensive. He just came up to me and just gave me a hug and said, we're so happy that you're here. And that's the first memory I have of diabetes camp and, and one that I always like to share because that's how I feel when I come back to diabetes camp. And next summer will actually be the summer that my campers that I had four or five years ago, that they graduate and they're seniors. So it's just so powerful to come back and, you know, again, have those connections and be able to catch up with everybody. So I love camp. <laughs> yeah, same. 
I started going to camp after the Bike Beyond trip. So the Bike Beyond trip is kind of like camp. It's just, you know, you bike every day. So very much like that. And I remember kind of the feeling of that, the weightlessness of type one, the irony of being surrounded by it, but not having to think of it about it as much as you did when you were on your own in the real world. Absolutely. And camp, the camps that I've been going to, they're called slipstreams, uh, Connected in Motion yeah. does them. Like very much like that, you know, three days where you just don't really have to worry about type one the way you did, you know, back at home. Did you ever feel that? Was that kind of like that sense of belonging and normalcy that you just didn't really realize that you had lost? Certainly. My A1C went down after I went to camp because I did not have a CGM back in 2015. I think back in 2015 was when it was kind of Dexcom was the best one to have, but it still wasn't very accurate. And I remember just testing my blood sugar. I mean, at that point, you know, we test before we ate, we go through all the stations because there is a medical staff that works at this camp and, and they make sure that everyone's, you know, checking when they should. And so, you know, they said, be a good example to these type ones. The lead doctor of the camp always says, I don't care what kind of diabetic you are outside of camp this week, you're going to be the best diabetic you can be. You got to be an example for these kids. Obviously he cares, but you know what I'm saying? It's just that attitude of you're a role model and you're an influence to them. And that really hit home for me. And so I just started testing my blood sugar at normal times. Like they recommend you do. And I was just really surprised at how well things went for me and how good my blood sugars were. And again, that normalcy, like I pulled out my meter and it was no big deal. And this past summer, my brother actually came to camp for the first time. And being the older sister, I've always kind of had a motherly role with his diabetes. And so whenever we're together, I'm saying, well, did you test? When are you taking insulin? Shouldn't you take insulin now? And, and I know that I get annoying and I really try to stop myself sometimes. But I had this moment at camp this summer where Jared, my brother came up to me with his meter because he doesn't have CGM. He came up to me with his meter to show me how good his blood sugars had been all day. And that was the first time in our entire lives that he's brought up diabetes to me without me asking. And I think that's just an example of the power of connecting with people on that level. And then were you able to do that online at home when you were like first diagnosed or was that not, was the online social media aspect of type one as not as big back then? I remember when I was a senior in high school I started a diabetes Twitter and all my friends made fun of me and I deleted it. And now I'm like, I could be famous and you guys ruined it for me. No, I'm just kidding. But I just, (laughs) I remember like I followed some of the bigger accounts. Like I always followed T1D chick, but again, like things just weren't as widely accepted on social media. And I think, you know, like when Instagram first started, everybody just used it to filter their photos. It wasn't like a feed that you checked. Yeah. Like Facebook or something. So I don't think I got into the diabetes online community until after I went to camp and made those connections. And then people said, well, do you follow this person? Do you follow this? And do you see this? And and even when I went to camp, I found out about all these insulin pumps and things that I didn't even know existed. So I definitely would say that those experiences brought me to the to the DOC. But it's developed. Those relationships have really developed over time thanks to social media. Yeah, I can. I feel that. Because after my first bike ride, 
I was very aware that I was the only type one on the team and that had gone through that, but I, w- I was sure that there was other type ones. For some reason, it made me realize that I can't be the only type one out there. So I you know, went headfirst into the, the OC, like on Facebook, and it was kind of overwhelming. But it was I remember yeah. the first um, post that I saw, it was about not, not changing your Lancet. And I was like, oh my God, like I do that. And it's it, probably the smallest thing. But it just made me realize, like, oh, wow, other people do this, too. And it was just really, really powerful, I think, like getting that first connection. And then camp, obviously, is 10 times more because you're, you know, face to face with these people. (laughs) Absolutely. And then, JC, were you around when uh, Cameron started going to camp? Did you know, were you there after she was or did you know her before she started going to camp? Did you notice any differences after she came back? It would have been the summer after college, which we like both lived freshman. at home. Yeah, after freshman. I'm trying to like think like that was a, that's a but long we're time old. Ago. Holy moly! Um, I'm I'm older than both of you, so thank you. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think. Like back to our freshman year, I feel like you definitely like didn't push to educate people as much. You just were kind of like. I don't know. I, I don't know if this is like right for me to say, so correct me if I'm wrong, but like, I feel like you also didn't watch like what you ate as much. Like, I feel like you strive for better A1Cs now. And like, you talk about them, like, and share, like when you're like really happy and like, like that last one, you had a really good one. And so you came and told us, but I feel like maybe it helped you like number one, learning tricks because you're always sharing your new tricks. <laughs> tricks. <laughs> tricks. And then I think it made me, like, pay attention to your diet more. And then I know you just, like, talk about, like, the friendships you've made. So I feel like you've maybe, like, found people you can, like, really relate to and learn stuff from as well. And, like, be their support as, like, they are for you, too. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's something that I've asked, you know, the type ones that I've talked to. But there was one conversation specifically where her her type none friend mentioned specifically how much she had changed after her she did a slipstream with me and she mentioned like how that slipstream really changed her outlook on it and she noticed very quickly how she became a lot more relaxed about it she became a lot more easy to talk to about her type one and it really changed the the way that she um, managed it afterwards so those weekends even if you're you know in your 30s like when I I was 30 when I started going to type one camp and it really, really did change my outlook on it, gave me an entire new perspective on management and different things I could do and better ways of taking my care of myself. Those experiential learning opportunities with other type ones, I think, are very, very important. And I think not enough people know about them to take advantage of them. I was just thinking about this the other day, how I went somewhere and met a bunch of new people who were asking me questions about diabetes. And I was like, wow, I really haven't answered a lot of these questions recently. So I started my my career in January and I just had all these different questions about type one. And I was like, wow, it's just been such a long time since I've explained it to someone like a new person. And I realized that it's because my environment is just me talking about diabetes and being so open about it. And so I think maybe that's why JC doesn't have as many questions. Cause like if she has a question, she'll ask it. There's nothing I think with my relationships with friends, definitely that I keep hidden. I don't know if you notice, I'm kind of outspoken. It's like a blessing and a curse. But like even today, I had a meeting working with another youth development organization and we had coffee. I just pulled out my needle, said, hope you don't mind, <laughs> stabbed myself. 
And she was like, wow, that's so cool you do that and out, out in the open. I'm like, well, thank you. But you know what I'm saying? I think just creating that environment where where people know and people understand, it, it, it not only is, like you said, it's safer for you and those people and less dangerous, but it also is just so much more comfortable. Yeah, hiding hiding it can be very draining. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the the less you want to think about it, the more you actually think about it. So it's very counterintu- yeah. counterintuitive. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I definitely spent a lot of years hiding it, and it probably made me think about it way more than I pro than it would have. So yeah, yeah, I feel that. And then has JC ever any questions that she's come up with uh, st- stick out to you? Any funny ones? <laughs> any cinnamon ones and not anything cinnamon related Oak um i think water. she yeah no she's she's always been pre-nursing and nursing so again she kind of had those textbook definitions but she did say that that one time she pricked my finger was the first time she ever pricked someone's finger so i was not in nursing school then it was my freshman year of college. that was <laughs> that was but you know what i'm saying you still already had like a basis knowledge so so for her to help me out and prick her fi- prick my finger like that, I don't know. I think we just always had an open relationship, I guess, in that way. Yeah. I I can't really think of anything. Like again, I always, I really do have that mindset. Not um, uh, there is no such thing as a stupid question. I think you guys should give the cinnamon thing a go. Oh yeah, we yeah. Should, she said we should try the cinnamon thing. I've never heard of it. What's cinnamon? Totally kidding. Totally kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, I actually did do that in college. Yeah, yeah, people think you can cure diabetes with cinnamon. How? That's what we're wondering. Yeah. <laughs> what I read in college was that it helped with insulin absorption. So I just said, oh, I'll take it, give it a go, like, you know, take supplements. Um, but what I failed to realize is that it helps with absorption. So, like, you have to make insulin for it, you know, to absorb. <laughs> so the stuff that I was using wasn't really working. But, yeah, it tasted good. It was fine. Like, I didn't, I didn't notice anything huge. But, yeah. But, yeah, some people just take it for more than it's worth certainly what's one of like the wackiest things you've heard she said what's one of the wackiest things you've heard to cure your diabetes or like a management method maybe yeah i guess okra water is one of the weirder ones for some reason if you soak okra or okra in a cup of water and then drink the water you're cured no no more type no more type ones Mine's not cure related, but but the thing I think that is so baffling to me is that so many people bring up their dead relatives. Like I have an uncle who died because of diabetes and then they wonder why the conversation takes a turn. Like what do you, what kind of connection are you making by telling me that your uncle died um, or your grandpa, your grandma? And so that's the one thing where I'm like, let's think before we speak, shall we? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. But again, education. Yeah, they're they're not trying to be silly or mean. They're just trying to connect and yes. sometimes and I think it just speaks to the lack of real understanding about diabetes and type one specifically. When you tell somebody that you have type one, they don't really know what that means in relation to diabetes and that there are different types and so yeah, it's not as well known as it might have been back before insulin was a thing. Certainly. Yeah. But that's what the show's about. And JC is helping. And Cameron is helping. Yes. 
You're making a difference. Thanks Absolutely. No, thank you for coming. You were you had some really good questions too. And then so from our answers, our very long answers, what have you kind of gathered based on our experiences with type 1? People that don't have type 1 or don't have to live with it or m- probably don't have as much experience as you do given that you're a nurse and your friend has type 1, what do you think they should know so that they can avoid those awkward situations where they just blurt out how many relatives have died from diabetes and that their cat has it? <laughs> um, I guess like but it's, it's so different because like where you were kind of closed off about it and like I've always said Cammie who's been super wide open I feel like I would say don't be afraid to ask questions because like obviously coming from like a healthcare standpoint like this is a serious thing and it's like you don't want to be alone and not have anybody like with you that like is not going on in case something were to happen so I feel like from type none standpoint, like, don't be afraid to ask questions, but maybe like, don't bring up like the bad sides of it <laughs> just to try to connect. But I feel like if you act, like if you just try to avoid the issue altogether, it's just putting like an elephant in the room too. like, yeah, acknowledge it, but acknowledge it like in a kind way. And don't be afraid to ask like, what do I, what could I do if something were to happen? I think like, just, yes, I appreciate that. Helpful for both sides to like, if I were to ever be in a situation where Cami and she would pass out, like, and I didn't know anything about diabetes, like I wouldn't know what to do. So not only would it make me more comfortable, it'd probably make Cami more comfortable too to know that she wasn't just gonna pass out and I was gonna <laughs> let you <laughs> let you hang out, <laughs> taking a good nap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So just be open. I don't know. Watch what you say. Like, be kind. Always be kind. That's like my number one. Thing. There we go. No, that's good advice. No, I think it also kind of touches on don't be afraid to let people know that you don't know anything about it. Because I think yeah. that's where a lot of those like mis, uh, misconceptions kind of come up. It's like, oh, they're talking about something that I have no idea about. I'm just going to blurt out the first thing that I know about it, which is, you know, grandma died from it last year or my cat has it. And again, it's just people's attempt at, to connect with something that they just don't know anything about. And it's probably just nicer for the type one to hear like oh i don't know anything about that but could you teach me or is there something that you'd like me to know kind of like how you're saying yes of course i just i think it would help both sides yeah definitely cameron what do you think people should know a lot of things all of the things i think like jc said again type one is so different to specifically different people But for me, I want people to ask questions. I want them to understand it more. I want them to recognize the difference between type 1 and type 2. I want them to ask questions, but not in a way that's demeaning to me or to someone else with type 1. I want them to understand that it is a serious thing, but again, it's so... This is so broad. There's so many things to know. So I think just... Asking those obvious questions up front can really debunk a lot of their previous preconceptions. Going back to the whole educational standpoint, I don't know why, because I think the question that you had asked in your email was, is there something specifically that upsets you regarding how people approach your diabetes? And I I was like, well, really not many things upset me because I try to be understanding about people's previous 
understandings of diabetes. But something that bothers me is when people get in my bubble of space. I've had a couple people actually touch my CGM when they're asking about it. And that really bothers me. So I guess, again, that goes back to the whole educational standpoint of ask questions, but don't be rude and touch people. I mean, that's just kind of common sense, I feel like. But then again, type one isn't necessarily common sense to some people because they haven't experienced somebody living with it. So um, that's definitely something that has bothered me is that people will be physical when asking questions. So that just goes back to that whole educational aspect. You don't like it when strangers touch you? No. That's so weird. It was it was a man at a bar, and I was like, this is not the way you should be flirting with me. This is annoying. He poked it, like pressed it into my skin. Yeah. I've definitely heard people getting that. There was one, another guest. She had a, a pump with a tube, and she would wear it in her bra. And a guy, like, at a bar went for it. It's like, what's that? And, like, reached for it and grabbed it. Maybe bars have something to do with it, or, you know, just yeah, people should like, know not to grab at other people when they don't know them. Yeah, being intoxicated definitely changes that. But it, and it's happened actually um, not in a bar setting as well. And someone just wondered and touched. I don't know. Yeah, it's like the, the whole pregnant lady thing. Like people feel <laughs> like they can they can rub their belly and it's no big deal. But it's, you know, they're still it's still part of them. It's on their body. Exactly. Like my, my Omnipod or my CGM is on me. So when you touch it, you touch me. So don't don't do that. Yes. I agree. Any final thoughts for the type one world? For the type one world? Well, if I'm talking to the type one world, I want the type one world to know that you are all amazing and you all can accomplish some great things. And above all else, if you get anything from this podcast, I want you to talk about your type one. I don't want you to talk about the textbook definition when you're talking about type one i want you to explain to people what it means to you and recognize the importance of that and although i know it's a personal choice talking about diabetes i have never heard a single friend of mine with type one say that explaining something about type one was a regret i've never heard someone regret explaining or talking about type one to their coworkers, to their boss to their colleagues to their friends to their family it's always an, a positive situation when you're able to explain your type one to someone else and that's what i want the type one world to know education is key i hear that <laughs> awesome thank you for having me walt i i really do love your podcast and i share it every time oh i love that <laughs> thank you so much and thank you for reaching out that was really cool when i got your message it's really cool to hear from people that are actually listening and hearing your pers your actual perspective on it. It was really cool. And I like to hear that you're actually doing something about that perspective and trying to make it better for people that might be going through it as well. Yeah, because living in rural communities, again, people refer to it as the boonies, the sticks. We live in Kearney, Nebraska, which is essentially the middle of America, like right in the middle of Nebraska, which is in the middle of the U.S. And it's a city with 30,000 people. Like I'm not – the city that we live in is not that small. And and they're living in smaller communities, there's a lot of benefits. But having type 1, it's just rare and and there's challenges. 
And it's important for people to recognize those, uh, not just like medical professionals, but the people that actually have those rare conditions in rural communities. Like they have to know that they're not the only one or it's good for them to know and that there's options out there. For sure. Love it. All right. Thank you, Cameron, for being on the show. Thank you, JC, for your questions. Yeah, thanks for having me. I learned a lot from you guys. Love it. Awesome. Thanks, Walt. Thank you.